one more time this evening uh, to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I'll read chapter 1 of that great day of the Lord and the coming judgment upon Jerusalem if they do not repent. Of course, we know that Judah, the southern kingdom, of which Jerusalem was the capital, would not repent, and God would ultimately lead Babylon in 587 to invade the southern kingdom, then in 586 carry them away into the land of Babylon. That's where we run into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the prophet Daniel. But for now, prior to all of this, uh, the word of Zephaniah to the southern kingdom during the time of the reign of Josiah. Listen as I read. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their gods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. And hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities, against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, 
and their flesh like refuse. Neither shall their silver, I'm sorry, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you tonight for a while longer as we dwell in your presence, and we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, what we have uh, in these three prophecies, beginning with Nahum, writing prior, well, a hundred years after the preaching of Jonah, when Nineveh repented, they repented of that repentance, as I've said now a number of times. Uh, that's a phrase I don't want you to forget, obviously. Prior to the reign of Josiah, uh, soon after the end of the reign of Manasseh, comes the writing of Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah is writing in the days most likely of the reign of Josiah prior to the fall of the southern kingdom, some 30 years or so, or 40 to 30 years prior to Israel's captivity, or the southern kingdom, rather, uh, being taken captive by the Babylonian empire. Now, what these letters or prophecies are in terms of the audience are not just writings to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, but these are writings also to the nations of the earth, which is why the whole series is entitled A Word for All Nations. Now, the reason for that is this. All nations, that is, groups of men who have gathered together to apply some sort of moral law are called by God to keep covenant with him. And so when a people, let's just say move away from the sphere of the civil magistrate to the sphere of the church, as it relates to the church, when we gather together and we call ourselves a body of believers, we must govern ourselves according to the laws found in Scripture that Christ has called the church to organize themselves around and to act according to the purposes for which he has given the church. What is the church called to do? To preach, to teach, to read aloud, to minister the sacraments, well, the word, to minister the sacraments, to pray together, to fellowship, all of those things the church is called to do because it is the ministry of the keys of the kingdom. And then you have the family. What is the family called to do? The family is the ministry or the sphere of health, welfare, and education. That is where we grow up and we understand not only how our bodies are cared for because that's what's happening in the home, mothers and fathers working together to care for their children. That's the seat of learning. Sometimes we co-opt others in exercise of that education, but God holds parents responsible for that. In the same way, God holds nations, that is the civil magistrate, in the same way to keep covenant by wielding the sword to punish the wicked and to protect the innocent, to encourage holiness among their people by applying the law of God. And so even as Nahum and here Zephaniah and later Habakkuk 
are writing, they're writing to Israel, but they are also speaking of the other nations of earth. We'll see that later in this book of Zephaniah, that they too are guilty of breaking covenant with God, not just Nineveh. Because the word of God is a word for all nations. And so when you and I go out into the world and we proclaim the word of God, it is the only word that brings life when it is kept. And of course, the inverse of that is cursings when it is disobeyed. Now, there's four points, four points that I want to make tonight as we are moving into chapter one. The first point is a short introduction to the occasion. The occasion is simply the historical context. So that's a sort of a point number one is a short introduction to the occasion. Point two, what all the world is like. It is like what Paul describes in Romans chapter three. There is none righteous. This is the condition of all the world. And then the third point, preaching and public repentance Preaching and public repentance, and then finally, the great day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord. Now let's look at this first point regarding an introduction to the occasion. There is some debate as to when Zephaniah is writing. I would argue, and I think there is reason, good reason for this, he is writing sometime between the beginnings of the Reformation of Israel, which started in 622 B.C., before the coming of Christ, to 612 B.C. Remember, we're counting down as we go towards zero. Zephaniah most likely began to prophesy after the discovery of the book of the law. One factor that has some significance in this is the oracle against Assyria in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Because these words would have little significance if Assyria had already fallen and she had not. This is according to O. Palmer Robertson. Therefore, this should be dated at least before Nineveh's collapse in 612 B.C. That's one bookend in terms of possibility of dating. Now, Robertson continues, more probably a prolonged contest would have developed out of the study of the law book, that is, the book of law that came forth from the temple. In such a circumstance, when this book of the law was discovered, the ministry of a prophet like Zephaniah would have been invaluable as an aid to young King Josiah. Now, Zephaniah is of royal lineage, and he's a priest. He's a preacher. He's a prophet. And he is called by God at that time to work alongside what Josiah is endeavoring to do as the king of Israel to provide spiritual encouragement, encouragement from the Lord so that he can say, thus saith the Lord. So within this sphere of the church, as it were, Zephaniah is faithfully warning Israel, if you do not take seriously the words of this book or these books, the book of the law, you will be destroyed. You will receive destruction. And so even as Josiah was endeavoring to reform the nation as the leader of the state, 
According to the book of the law, Zephaniah was endeavoring to bring reformation as called to care for all men by prompting them to repentance and spiritual renewal. We find a two-pronged approach to bringing life to a nation that had wandered into religious idolatry. I think that's very important for us to understand that this two-pronged attack is not always what we get, but it is certainly a effective means of bringing about reformation, if only for a season. Now, what is all the world like? This is the second point. As Zephaniah is addressing Israel here for their sinfulness and rebellion, he is not only addressing Israel. For the idolatry they were engaging in was not at all a sin unique to Israel. He addresses Nineveh, well, Nahum addresses Nineveh, rather, but also Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Akron, the Cherethites, the, uh, the Philistines, or the land of Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. He speaks of or is addressing many of these places. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah is wiped off the face of the earth at this point. Philistia is simply the extension of the Egyptian empire. You cannot, therefore, reject the lordship of God, of Yahweh, and hope to live in peace and prosperity. You can't build walls high enough in your own idolatry to protect yourself from God's righteous rule on earth. He will punish the wicked, and he will bless the righteous. This is true not only for individuals, for families, for churches, but also for nations. And so any nation that does not honor the Lord will be cut off. And history has shown this and God has said it. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. Now, the question oftentimes between the Old and New Testaments is, does God continue to reveal himself in power against nations or are all of these things that we find in the old testament strictly applicable now to the church and there is debate as to that but i think that it is abundantly clear that when a nation in the main honors the lord seeks to love and protect their neighbor and lives according to the law of god there is blessing when the state punishes the wicked guess what happens less Wickedness. When the state takes very clearly the punishment of those who would, for instance, take another's life, guess what there will be less of? The taking of life. How does this happen? In a very simple way. Fear. Fear. Now there will be some that say, fear is no motivator to righteousness, and I say, I agree. But that's not the goal of the state either, is it? The goal of the state is to do what? It is to simply preserve life so that what can happen is the church might function freely like Zephaniah did here to <coughs> proclaim to those who are not in fear of their lives all the time the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Josiah, as he's taking, well, he has already taken the throne as a young boy. Late, a little bit later in his life, however, the book of the law is discovered and they open it and go, we've not been doing this properly. We have not been functioning 
as a society devoted to the honor of the Lord. And so what did Josiah begin to do? He began to tear down the high places that were erected to the false gods of the people who had never actually been taken out of the land. And so Zephaniah's call is in response to the idolatry of the nations that had crept back into Israel time and time and time again. And so it is a call to the peoples and to nations to repentance. First to Judah and then to the rest of the world. If we wish to be blessed by God, we must keep covenant with God. Now, that does not mean that when we keep covenant with God, nothing bad happens to us. What it means is, at the very least, God is not acting against us. And that is a far more dangerous place to be than the world acting against us or Satan acting against us. It is one thing to have an enemy in the devil. It is another thing to have an enemy in God himself. And so the call is clear. Repentance. Uh, Philip Kaiser, who is a, a wonderful pastor and commentator, a student of the scriptures, writes this concerning the heart of this prophecy. Repentance, humbling ourselves before God and calling upon him in prayer is the key to personal revival, family revival, church revival, national revival, and eventually world revival and reformation. We don't need to know the times when the nations will be converted. All we need to do is follow the recipe for that to happen, a recipe that is the same for personal revival. What is that? Open the Bible and do what it says. What? And when I say do what it says, I am not talking about meritorious works salvation. When the Bible says believe upon Jesus Christ and you will be saved, what is the Bible telling you to do? To believe upon Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now what we know is that if in your heart you do that sincerely, guess what God has been doing on your heart? He has been awakening you through new birth to give you a heart that longs to obey. This is what we should be praying for. For a kind of revival that is defined by Scripture that brings about public good. He continues, When we use the recipe for personal revival and trust God to raise up other individuals, God will eventually bring such a stream of individuals whose hearts are turned to God that cultural changes begin to happen. I'll give you an, an example. Maybe it's considered, maybe you might consider it a silly example, but years ago there was this guy named George Lucas who wrote and made a film about these space wizards that swung laser swords. And the only people that went to see it were nerds. And they went to see this movie and they sat in the theaters and went, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Such that it became, in our culture, a pervasive part of who we are. And it went, it came about by every little single ticket sale. Everybody that went to that movie bought one ticket. 
And then they told their neighbors and they bought a ticket. So that anywhere you go in the West, if you say Jedi, they know exactly what you're talking about. As it relates to the growth of the kingdom, it would be silly to equate one with the other, really. But where does it begin? Right here at Reformation OPC, you buy the ticket, right? You say, this is what I am about. And when you tell others of the glory and the beauty, not of wizards with laser swords, but of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and you relay all of the marvelous things he has done in history, listen, parents, your children get it. When they open the Old Testament, they read the stories about water coming from a rock or David cutting the head off Goliath, you go, that is the story I want to be part of. And the only way to public repentance is if we live in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is the role of preaching, thirdly, in public repentance. As it relates to these two spheres working together, no one says it is enough for those who have the rule of law and wield the sword simply to tear down Asherah poles. Because if you tear down all of the idols in a land that is filled with false worshipers, guess what you're going to get? A revolt. But if one arm says, no more sports on Sunday, and the other arm says, this is why, or no more any of these things that are violations of the word of God, no more idols... There is a church not far from our house that celebrates winter solstice. Do you know what that is? It's a pagan harvest festival. What have they done? They have drug an idol into their sanctuary and said, here you go. We are now going to adopt pagan rituals into our church calendar. And they call it good what is the role of the state here in light of discovering the word of the law? What does a righteous king want to do? Well, he walks throughout the land that God has given responsibility of, and he says, that is an affront to the glory of God. It cannot stand. Tear it down. And then there's a people who go, why are you taking our idols from us? And Zephaniah stands up in the sanctuary and he says, it must be pulled out of your hearts. It needs to be torn out of your hearts so that the people can be taught not just to not panic when their idols are torn down, but then to say, well, let's tear down that one too. There's an Asherah over there and over there and over there. It's the beauty of these spheres working together because the only alternative to reformation is what? It is, well, look it up at a thorse. I mean, deformation. You are either having your life and your mind transformed by the renewing of it through the word of God or you're moving in the other direction. 
Either you are reforming into something that is being sanctified after the pattern of the one who cannot be captured by human hands and idols, or what are you going to be doing? You're going to be going in the way of the world, which is why God said in the Old Testament, drive out all of the idolaters, because I know that if you leave idols in the land, your heart will be inclined to worship them. And so kick them down. This was a dual front reformation. Zephaniah preached and Josiah tore him down. That was the reform that God wanted in Israel. But you know what happened? They tore down the idols, but they did not tear them out of their hearts. And that is why when we come to chapter 1 and we read of the great day of the Lord, Zephaniah is speaking of an event that we now know would happen. And so we find in this chapter, that's not all introduction in terms of what would normally be an introduction. We read of the great day of the Lord. Now quickly, on that term, the great day of the Lord, it's mentioned 21 times in this book. And in it, we learn something of the kind of cosmic or universal covenantal judgment. As Israel, so goes the rest of the world. Now what is pictured here, at least in the first two chapters of Zephaniah, is the imminent destruction of Jerusalem in 587 when Babylon invades. But this general theme, one of corruption of impending judgment, of God's deliverance promised after that is something that is cyclical throughout the scriptures. Now, ultimately, it culminates in what great destructive act? If anything, the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 is a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Or Israel is warned... They see the Messiah and he preaches to them, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and they do not repent. If they do not listen to Zephaniah, guess who they will also not listen to? The voice of the one who filled Zephaniah's lungs with air. And so when Christ comes and he preaches the kingdom and they kill Christ, that solidifies the judgment of Israel. But we're not there yet. But the point is, these, this theme of, of judgment of corruption, of deliverance, and certain restoration ultimately leads to the bringing in of the Gentiles. And so even after the book of Zephaniah, there is hope. But let's quickly move to this first chapter. And when I say quickly, I mean quickly. In the first few verses, verses 2 through 6, we see the language of what is often called creation reversal. Creation reversal. I want you to think of a child writing a beautiful drawing out of a pencil and then turning the pencil around and just erasing it all. What God is going to do with Israel, with the southern kingdom rather, Judah, is he will wipe them off the map. He will use a nation to do it. He will use Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. But it is the language of creation reversal and it is holy and utterly terrifying. And it is coming. I will utterly consume. Verse 3, I will cut off. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. 
I will cut off every trace of Baal. So not only those who are worshipers, but guess what? Those who worship them become like them, the idols and those who worship them. And then all the way to verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord, that is, repented of their repentance and have not sought the Lord nor acquired him, those are the ones who will be judged. Daniel was saved. Why? Why was Daniel saved? Because he was a righteous man. So too Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were not all unrighteous, but the nation in the whole was. In verses 7 through 13, we find judgment of corrupt leaders, those who are in power. This is what the Lord says to those of power who are not used to be told to be quiet. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Who are those guests? Those whom he will utterly cut off from the land. Verse 8, I will punish princes, the king's children, all of those who are clothed with what? Foreign apparel. It is not just that they wear the garments of idolaters, but they clothe themselves in the whole system of pagan nations, and they will be punished for it. And then in verse 10 and 11, despite the fact that they will cry out, there will be no help. In verse 12, there is punishment for those of complacency. They are settled in their complacency. Here's how their complacency is expressed. These are the agnostics. The Lord will not do good. The Lord will not do evil. He has no... We should not even consider the Lord in our decisions. This describes really whom? A kind of functional secularism. These are the Sadducees of later date, of course. And then verse 13. Therefore their goods shall become, what? The possessions of others. Their houses will be a desolation, and though they built a house, someone else gets to live in it. They won't get to even reap the fruit of their hard labors. And then verses 14 through 18 speaks of the whole land of the southern kingdom as being judged. Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. This is not referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of all things. That is not what the great day of the Lord is here. This great day of the Lord is the judgment of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, what does all this mean for us? Has God ceased acting in this way towards the sons of men? No. He hasn't. But what he has done is in the sending of the Messiah and in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is he has poured out his spirit upon the world. And what he has done is he has, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed a far greater fruit of repentance when the preaching of the word goes out. So that even now what we see is that there are countless saints in all manner of nations who fear and worship the Lord. At the time of Israel, what nations were on the earth that actually feared God with any kind of consensus or collective? There are many nations, even in our own age, who operate in such a fashion that they actually, at least in some fashion, assent to the idea of the word of God as a good rule. Not all, but some. Now what it means for us here in particular Reformation OPC is this. If we endeavor to be blessed by God, we must be vigilant in the application of God's word to all our lives, to every part of it, all of Christ, for all of life. Let us seek then to be renewed 
guided by and motivated by both the blessings promised to those who obey and the warnings to those who reject the word of the Lord. Zephaniah could be writing to us. Could he not? To not be complacent, to not clothe ourselves in foreign apparel, foreign gods, that is the idols of this world, but rather discover the word of the law. What does that look like in our life? When Josiah discovers the word of the law, what is he doing? Oh, the Bible that's been sitting on my shelf all this time, maybe I should pull it off, open it and go, oh, I could do this. To have your heart changed and fashioned after what you find in it, to let the warnings drive fear into your heart. Because there is this reality. Nothing can save you, save the only one who can actually save. That there is no one who can come to your aid except the very one who promises judgments. But he also promises what? Flee to Christ and you will be saved. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That message still preaches. Let's pray. Lord, even now.